This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Bring podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Bogner, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Bring magazine. My uh, guest on the podcast today is Jeff Irway of La Cumbre Brewing in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you very much for having me, Jamie. Cool. Uh, We'll get into a great conversation here in a second. Uh, Can't wait to talk to Jeff about uh, uh, some of IPAs that he's made that have been formative on me and my beer development. uh, but first, we've got a, a you know, quick message from our supporters. As the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way on innovative solutions that match their brewing customers' immediate and future needs. G&D backs every project they touch and provides service second to none. Contact G&D Chillers today for your chiller sizing needs at one 800 555 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Also, the SS Brewtech founders launched with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. So, Jeff, I first visited your, visited your brewery uh, back in 2013 on a road trip back from Tucson, Arizona, where I was down there for the Gem and Mineral Show. Uh, and it was late at night, and I needed a beer because I'd been driving through uh, blizzard conditions uh, you know, through northern Arizona to get there. And uh, yeah, I pulled up, I, I think it was the, the Beer Advocate app or uh, website to see uh, who the most highly rated brewery was in Albuquerque. Found you guys. Um, yeah, discovered that you had just won a, a GABF medal for uh, for elevated IPA, and thought, oh shit, I got to go there. Um, popped in at ten o'clock at night, sat down at the bar, had a beer, and uh, I think that those beers, uh, uh, elevated in particular, uh, was one of the first experiences where the next day and the day after that, I could still have this vivid sense memory of uh, of the hop profile and how different that was than anything that I had tasted before. Um, and so it was just that that interesting, strange impact that it had on me uh, early on, and I don't 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 mean to uh, uh, fawn over it here. <laughs> no, I love the vacation. That's that's great. <laughs> but you know, but but uh, you know what what struck me uh, from you know from those early days uh, as I was uh, growing in this interest and love yeah. of IPAs in particular, uh, you know, was just that kind of depth and complexity that you've uh, grown to be known for with your IPAs. Um, so talk to me a little bit uh, how about how your arc uh, uh, developed as a brewer, how you became a professional brewer, and then. Uh, how you developed uh, an interest in building these kind of layered and nuanced uh, hoppy beers? Yeah, so um, you know, about a uh, little uh, less than twenty years ago, I was uh, you know I was growing up in uh, Rochester, New York, and um, there was a, a beer store there called uh, Beers of the World. Um, there was a, a, a coffee table book at a good friend's of my, a friend of mine's. Uh, it was uh, one of Michael Jackson's, you know, uh, I want to say ultimate beer guide. Yeah. Um, and uh, one thing led to another and I, I just started making my way through the 3,000 different bottles of beer that they had there. Um, uh, you know, fast forward a little bit, I was uh, 
staying, you know, I was working out on the Navajo reservation as a teacher, uh, believe it or not, there's not a great selection of craft beer on the Navajo reservation. Um, I was, I was an absolute craft beer fanatic. I, you know, traveled, um, pretty extensively for my 23 years, uh, trying beers. And, uh, I, I, I was, uh, I found myself in Flagstaff, Arizona one night and, uh, the next morning I woke up with a terrible hangover. My wife wanted to go uh, shopping at the, the Buffalo Exchange. It happened to be right across the street from a home brewing shop. Again, one thing led to another. <laughs> I, 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 I uh, you know, bought all my first brewing equipment. I got absolutely fanatical about it. And luckily yeah. for me, the second year I was home brewing, a, uh, we had an influx of new teachers um, living uh, at this almost like a dormitory kind of thing right next to the school I was working at. Um, and uh, those people uh, drank a lot of beer. And, you know, that was luckily, luckily for me because it meant that I got to brew a ton of beer. So I was yeah. brewing two, three times a week, spending literally 30 hours as a home brewer a week. Um, <laughs> the second job. I, it was. It was. And it was such an amazing way to build that passion. And, you know, obviously, you know, during this time, I could go on and on about all the trips I took and all the amazing um, commercial brewers that I grew to become friends with. Yeah. Uh, I was lucky enough to win, a, uh, you know, several home brewing awards. And, uh, you know, in a conversation with one uh, specific uh, head brewer, he they recommended that I go to brewing school. And um, I did that. And that, uh, that head brewer, uh, Ted, um, was at Chama River at the time. And uh, right after I graduated, he hired me. And... Um, that was an amazing experience. Uh, he was getting Marble Brewery opened at the time, another great brewery from Albuquerque. And um, instead of you know me spending the next couple of years working not just underneath somebody, he literally just threw me into the you know the fire, <laughs> and I, I had to run that brewery on my own while he was uh, getting Marble Brewery open. And it was a really great crash course in, in commercial brewing. Um, and then, uh, you know, after after a few years uh, running Chama River Brewing Company, um, I, I I realized that I had the um, the backing from um, my community of of, of friends and uh, that that I could get. I th- I thought at the time I could get Lacumbre Brewing Company open. <laughs> there were some moments there where I was uh, I had some serious self doubt, but uh, but I luckily was able to work through them. Yeah. Uh, so uh, when you launched the brewery. Um, did you have a specific uh, product focus in mind? Or, Absolutely. Uh, I wanted to drown Albuquerque in hops. I thought <laughs> at the time, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, there was nothing unabrasive about what the what I thought the craft brewing public wanted. Um, you know, I'd gone out, I'd spent a, several years going to the San Diego Real Ale Festival and stuff, and I was like, this is what Albuquerque is missing right now in craft brewing. And then I, you know, while I was at Chama, I, I definitely, you know, tested the market with some right. really aggressive beers. I mean, at the time, you know, using five and a half pounds per barrel Ooh, total geez. would have been like, yeah. uh, that's a, that's insane. Um, but uh, you know, I, obviously, moving forward, that number has grown considerably while the <laughs> yeah. while the overall bitterness right, right. that people are going for has come down. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I think you know we're all the better for nuances is is, is, uh, is is a good thing uh, there, there seems to be a, a character I think to uh, to elevate it into some other New Mexico IPAs that uh, it almost feels like the place like I have this kind of sense connection when I when I drink uh, you know New Mexico and Albuquerque uh, IPAs where they're dry you know and there's and they almost feel a little bit like the desert just that kind of uh, 
uh, you know, you catch those glimpses of, of uh, brightness, you know, as you roll through this kind of dry experience. Um, you know, do you do you get the same kind of, and I, and I get that you know, same kind of regional sense when I, you go to the Pacific Northwest and hop into Portland, and you're like, wait, oh, shit, they love dank stuff up here, don't they? Um, you know, uh, tell me a little bit about how, uh, you know, the brewers influence uh, each other and how that reflects itself in, the, in some of the flavors in the beers. Yeah, well, I mean, it's no secret that probably, geez, at this point, 70% of the city's brewers, the largest brewers in yeah. the city of Albuquerque, have all either trained under Ted at Marble, myself, or my director of brewery operations, Daniel, or somebody else that's trained under us. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, there's definitely some group think there going on. Um, I, I like to believe that we do a good job of trying to, to, to differentiate ourselves a little yeah. bit. And I think that's happened even more over the years. I think maybe if you came in 2013, which you said you did, and tried all the IPAs, I think there might have been a little bit more um, uh, ubiquity uh, going on. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think, uh, I think it's I've our, since been back, I think, in 2015 and 2017. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there, there's, a, there's more differentiation <laughs> in the market sure. for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what... Um, the brewer, you know, brewers in Albuquerque, first of all, do like to have a fair um, amount of of malt balance. We all really like the use of calcium chloride in the mash yeah. for the most part. We all really like the use of calcium sulfate extensively, and um, that definitely affects mouthfeel. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, you know, we're all a lot of us are using the same exact yeast, or at least a derivation of that yeast. Uh, you know, some some kind of chico oil, um, and uh, you know, we all like, just just like the food of Albuquerque, we like big, bold flavors. And it's no secret that, you know, green chili goes pretty darn well right. with IPA. For sure. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I think, I think, the, the food has definitely driven the, the flavor of our beers as much as, uh, as much as anything. When I was last down there, uh, you know, you told me something interesting, and that's, uh, you know, you were, we were talking about uh, Hazy IPA that you'd launched, that you're about to pull off the shelves because uh, it just wasn't selling as well as you wanted to sell, which seemed like this crazy counter-narrative that the New Mexico audience really does prefer, you know, dry, more West Coast-style IPAs. Uh, has that proven out for you, or, uh, you know, has the market started to come around? The, the market has started to come around to them, um, as have I. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not to say that it's my favorite style. It's not my sure, favorite style. Sure, sure. Um, but I have definitely grown a great appreciation, not only for um, a really well-made one, but how hard it actually is to make. These, right. these you know, there's there, there was a concept, of, especially amongst us old curmudgeons that have been doing this for, um, you know, the, for for what feels like uh, a century, but really is only like a little more than a decade, um, that uh, you know it's late. It was lazy brewing, and it was easy to do. Any beer is easy to brew poorly. <laughs> sure, sure. Any beer, yeah. Um, but to brew specifically these, those beers really well, it, it does take a, a challenge. Um, so back to the consumer, though. The consumer in Albuquerque, I think, um, you know, it needed to be teased a little bit. It needed to, it, it, you know, people needed to be exposed to it but now you know um marbles released a a a year i think it's a year-round beer in desert fog and that i think that's selling pretty well for them um we um have taken the other route of um throwing a lot of uh really big um draft only 
uh, well, not draft only, sorry, tap room only releases that are, you know, on the shelf and off the shelf in a couple weeks, right. sometimes selling out in days. And um, But we also do like, you know, two month release of El Hugo, or two or three month release of uh, Sunfade. And um, those beers uh, are increasingly moving better. Huh. Um, but, you know, the fads, uh, you know, New Mexico is a small place. It is um, socioeconomically a little depressed. People don't travel nearly, nearly as much as they do yeah. um, in other parts of the country. And so, you know, we were, you know, you know there weren't that many people you know, traveling out to, you know, Boston or even Chicago right. and trying those beers there. The first time they tried those beers was the first time we brewed those beers. <laughs> right, and, right. Uh, you know, maybe maybe it's just I wasn't brewing them all that well at first. I don't, I don't know. But uh, but they, they've definitely warmed up to them for sure. I mean, yeah. to the point where um, I would say, you know, between Marble and Lacumbe, we're probably going to brew between the two of us 6,000 barrels of, wow. of those beers this all year. Right. Tell me a little bit about your uh, your uh, design and process as you're thinking about a beer. How, how do you go from uh, envisioning it to um, to creating a recipe, writing a recipe, uh, deciding you know, what ingredients to use and what kind of proportions, and then uh, walking through that kind of execution, realization, iteration, iteration process. <laughs> I, it's been a long CBC. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, I hear you. Is a little bit loose now. <laughs> I, I hear you. Um, so that depends on the style for sure. I I will admit that I am I, I never have thought of myself as being some creative genius. Um, I've always thought of myself as being a much more technical brewer than I am some um, savant that uh, yeah. is uh, going to set the world on fire with a new flavor that's never been created before. Um, I do consider myself a master of recreation of the classics. And so when I set out to brew a Hellas Lager, I want it to taste like the very best Hellas Lager the last time I was in Bavaria. Yeah. And I want to recreate that experience not only for myself, but for everyone else. And I don't think I can improve on that. I really don't. Um, it would, to, And to me, it shows a, it would show a great deal of hubris for me to try to say like, you know, that, that time I was at Ondex and I was uh, looking out at the Bavarian Alps and having a moss of uh, Hellas, I think I can do better than that. Um, well, yeah, I know, but yeah, this this idea of better, I think, you yeah. know, we, we get wrapped up in a little bit too much. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think, uh, you know, and, and even when you, you know, travel through Bavaria and taste different expressions of these beers, you know, there can be multiple expressions of great and they can be very different from each other and they're both valid in different ways. They're both excellently executed you know, with different design perspectives. And I think, you know, when we start talking about beer, you know, made by American breweries for American consumers, it's also possible to make them great in ways that appeal directly and feel great, you know, to those American audiences. Absolutely. And when somebody hands me a, a Pilsner that's been dry hop with two pounds per barrel, a <laughs> Hallertau Middlefruit, and, yeah. um, you know, a new, you know, experimental hop from HBC up in Pacific Northwest and it's unfiltered, I think to myself, you know, maybe this is an exceptional beer. It's just not Pilsner. It's just marketed, you know, a little inaccurate. Aren't late. all those beer names, though, just <laughs> marketing? I mean, even the whole concept of style. Mm -hmm. It's really just a way to, you know, hopefully create some connection between something someone had before and this, this, this other thing that they haven't had before. Yeah. And explain to them that it's kind of like that, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the idea of style, I, I try to not look at it as rules because yeah. even the guides that we have for styles are all created based on historical examples. 
um, you know, or created from commercial examples. And, uh, you know, I think it's those brewers that ultimately drive the bus on what those styles become and not, uh, not vice versa. Yeah, I guess I guess my point is is that um, there are, are certain styles that I will take a great deal of um, of uh, you know artistic license with, and there yeah, are those that yeah. I will not. Um, and certainly I'm a style a lot, like yeah, I'm going to take a lot more artistic license with an eight percent alcohol hazy double IPA sure, sure. than I am with um, than I am with a, a pilsner or it's a like Dorm punk Monday. rock. There's no tradition exactly. to uh, to yield to there and no expectation. Right, right exactly, it. exactly. Whereas you know uh, if you're if you're playing um, you know a solo of Rachmaninoff um, and uh, he's written every single note that you're supposed <laughs> to play there. Uh, not much artistic license to be had. Although, you know, <laughs> uh, I've said it before uh, as I was talking to Sean from Cerebral on the podcast. You know, if I, I've listened to a fair amount of classical music and we listen to different conductors and different mm-hmm. orchestras, uh, some of these pieces, even though they're the same notes, can sound, uh, you know, very different. And so, uh, you know, there's there's always space for expression yeah. um, within these. So, uh, um, when let, let's talk about IPAs because that's that, that's what I'm that's kind of you know that's kind of my my shtick it's, it it makes up yeah, over seventy percent of what I brew, and um, and it's definitely what what put me in Albuquerque on the map, uh, you know when I so first off I always start with my malt and um, and I select uh, you know the malt for for what I'm obviously what I'm trying to create I don't ever use um, a, a German base malt for for uh, IPAs. It's just not, uh, you know, the Pilsner, the biscuity Pilsner malt to me is, is not what I, not the best, uh, uh, it's not the best use of that malt. Okay. Uh, and I found more and more that I'm kind of um, iffy on using, um, on using big, bold British pale malts too. Huh. I used to quite a bit. Um, and what I've found is that <clears throat> I'm, I'm beginning to appreciate the sort of neutrality of American and Canadian grown um, two row uh, and, and Pilsner malts um, as, as a nice, and I'll use the word, it's because it's, it's the way I think about it in, in my mouth, in, in my mouth is a soft um, malt base, and especially when it comes to hazy, you know, any kind of hazy IPA. Um, and I have backed away significantly from, from caramel malts, especially the darker ones. Um, if I'm cre- if I when, when I want to create color um, in my IPAs, I generally look towards darker Munich malts. Okay. Um, and and darker meaning not not necessarily the ones that you're looking at from uh, from many of the German maltsters um, that are that are currently available to especially the ones available to homebrewers. Those really top out at like 10 Lovabon. But some of the ones from the American malting malt companies, you can get upwards of 25, 30 Lovabon. I mean that's a that's a fair amount of color that you can get from those malts without using any caramel malt. Yeah. And I do want a, a malt base to these beers. I don't. I, I don't tend to like the beers that are really brashly bitter, yeah. which, which I really like, but also have no malt depth to them at all. So why why eliminate the caramel malt? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, I do believe that caramel malts in general compete heavily with um, hop aromatics and hop flavor. Um, but in addition to that, uh, it's it's been known for quite a while that caramel malts are a really good source of the precursors to E2 nonanol, the oxidative characteristic right. that we all think of as, as being cardboardy. And, um, you know, 
I, I, I was listening to a great brewer um, speak a, a bunch of years back, and he and he impressed me with his his statement that he's saying, "Look, I'm not I'm not making you know it was a it was a, he's a large you know he runs a larger brewery, and he said I'm not making the single greatest beer I can single greatest IPA I can possibly make for." Um, the brewer that tries that beer, the second it comes out of the filter, the second it comes out of the bright tank right. for the first time, I'm brewing the greatest IPA that my average consumer is actually going to drink. And so he knew that the average consumer is going to be drinking that at 10 weeks. You can complain all you want about the fact that that's depressing, but it is a fact. Right. And um, and so you need to create a, an IPA you know, if you want, you know, you need to create, create an IPA run that, and you know, maybe the, your use of hops isn't best uh, throwing, you know, three pounds per barrel in your dry hop for a beer like that. Maybe you'd be better off throwing it in the whirlpool. Let's uh, unpack that a, a little bit more. To, uh, but first, uh, I want to uh, acknowledge our sponsors on this episode. Great beers are made from select ingredients. With BSG, you'll bring the world to your brew house with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients from across the globe to just down the road. Their dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with the assistance you need in every step of the way. Let BSG be your supplier of choice for products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. For more information, visit them at bsgcraftbrewing.com or call 1-800-374-2739. Also, this episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, an organization dedicated to homebrewing and the worldwide community of homebrewers. I think that's an interesting thing to think about uh, what your recipe looks like, not when it's in the tank or not when it's immediately packaged, but how that beer is going to develop when your average consumer you know, drinks it. Also, you know, given the, the variety of different uh, you know, storage conditions that it's going to be stored in, um, how do you, how do you, uh, you know, think about that as you're, you know, in addition to this, these caramel malts, obviously that's uh, one consideration. Are there other considerations in terms of how you hop and which hops you use and uh, other techniques you may use in, in the brew house in order to promote that kind of longevity? Yeah, you know, it, it is so cool. Uh, some of the studies that uh, Dr. Shellhammer and and the people at the, the really large um, hop brokerage yeah. companies are doing on the stability of hop flavors, hop stability index and stuff. And uh, I, would, I, I would be talking out of turn to try to say that I understand that chemistry um, uh, better than I do. Uh, what I will say, you know, so I, I, I can't really address the hop variety as far as, you know, its longevity of aroma, but I can say that um, the the hopper aromatics that that a brewer can get from um, whirlpool hopping and from uh, hop back hopping have a great deal more longevity than any hopper aromatics you're going to get from dry hopping. Uh, in my opinion, a three month old IPA that has been dry hopped at four or five pounds per barrel smells like it was barely dry hopped at all yeah most of the time yeah um it was uh, all went down the drain but more what we do at our company is we work our absolute tails off to make sure that we have the freshest beer that's humanly possible in the market and we spend an enormous amount of money making our company far less profitable <laughs> by yeah, by yeah. doing just that yeah we control when our beer sh we control um when our beer ships and how our beer ships um and and, and i would much rather sh ship less beer to our distributors in arizona and Col colorado every two weeks than ship once a month 
right. because I know that I'm going to be able to get them the freshest beer possible. I'm not going to completely reformulate elevated IPA. Um, you know that that beer has been uh, my number one selling beer since we opened since the very day we opened. Yeah, and, and I and I knew it would be, and I designed it that way. And um, I'm not going to just completely redesign the beer just because I have uh, you know because I I, I worry that uh, somebody's going to drink it uh, when it's 120 days old. We just make make darn sure that it's not ever. And, yeah, uh, and that's that's the key to that, that for me. But yeah, there is a lot of things you can do, do design-wise to make sure that those beers um, have a, a nice, fresh uh, hop aroma. That you know, I've tried um, three or four IPAs lately that ha- are really nice beers, even at two and a half, three months old. And I try them, and there is a nice hop aroma. And I talk to the brewer, and they're like, "Yeah, we don't dry hop that beer at all." Huh? And 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 you know, again, uh, you, you brought up the concept of you know what is better and stuff well that's a really good concept for i think brewers to start think about thinking about that you know is something is this beer you know obviously if if you go to smell an i if you go to smell an ipa and you're smelling buttered popcorn that's worse um right always but uh you know if if just because um you know you smell a beer and it smells like uh you know fresh ripe mangoes does that make that a better beer than that IPA that you smelled that smelled like, you know, fresh pine needles and 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 uh, an orange zest? There are certain people that would like it better, but I don't think that necessarily makes it just a better beer. Yeah, I think concepts of better are culturally constructed and shift quickly, uh, especially quickly. <laughs> especially in you know in today's market. Yes, uh, you know, and at the same time, you know, the the entire brewing industry is is actively engaged in how we you know push that in various directions. The hops growers are trying to produce you know hops that can uh, create flavors that brewers want that are on these kind of things. Um, yeah, we just got to be careful because yeah. there there are, there can be unintended consequences to what we do. Um, you know, for, for instance, and uh, in, 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 and the studies are not conclusive yet, but uh, I think a lot of us have our own um, predictions as to what what some of the uh, uh, unintended consequences have been of brewers constantly pushing the uh, the the uh, the hop growers and the uh, and the processors to keep uh, kilning and pelletizing temperatures down. I think that's resulted in some of the highest quality pellets we've ever had that also have some of the highest levels of uh, alpha amylase, beta amylase, uh, and, and glu- glucosidases that we've ever seen in hops. And that can result in some really, really unpredictable uh, shelf stability issues potentially, but also um, you know, just production nightmares. Tell me about that. Have you had some experiences with? Uh, I haven't had some experiences with them. <laughs> okay. I've had just had enormous <laughs> nightmares. Yeah, like what? Um. Well, you know, I, I, I'll just tell the the, I'll tell the worst experience we had. <laughs> okay. Um, pretty early on when we first experienced this, we had, we brewed a beer. It was a, um, it was six and a half percent alcohol, uh, hazy. You know, fruit forward IPA that we had we had designed on our three barrel brew house, um, and we really loved it. And we went and dry hopped it. And same thing had happened that had happened a couple times before. On the third day, we um, dumped hops. And uh, sorry, on the third day, we, we started to notice a, a refermentation in the in the tank, and we were like, oh, shoot. 
And we always keep our tanks at like uh, 15 psi. Okay. Uh, it, we keep head pressure on those on the fermenters because I don't want the the hop aroma gassing off. Sure, sure. Um, and then we, uh, you know, on the fourth day, we noticed it was keep on dropping a, a little bit, but it really slowed down. And we were tracking diacetyl levels, and uh, diacetyl was just taking forever to get to get to get rid of it. Um, we dumped dumped hops and yeast, and all of a sudden it refermented again, and created even more diacetyl. I'm talking like it would it would go. It, you know, the beer originally had gone from diacetyl negative, like below threshold, yeah. to six seven times oh. threshold. So like, there's no way to serve this beer. Right. It's, can't do it can't crash it and the pressure came up again and diacetyl really started to slowly come down and then we dumped dumped hops and yeast again because we're trying to get the yeast out of solution the dead yeast out of solution trying to get hops out of solution so that we can eventually someday (laughs) transfer a pretty you know beer that has pretty low cell counts that happened two or three times that we dumped hot and what we would notice as soon as we dumped the the dump dump the hops and yeast two things happened uh head pressure would drop by four or five psi because obviously we've removed some stuff from the tank right and refermentation would kick up again <laughs> and after the third time my head brewer and i were sitting there thinking we are retarded um because clearly what had happened is we relieved hydrostatic pressure on the yeast cell walls that allowed the yeast to referment more. And so, uh, you know, that, that, that resulted in us reformulating exactly what our standard operating procedures would be with those beers. And at this point, we just encourage that refermentation. Huh. If we want it to happen right away as soon as humanly possible so that we get it over with and we get that diacetyl reduced and, and also so that we know for a fact it's not going to happen in the can. So how do you encourage it now then? Uh, keeping temperatures up there. Okay. Setting our uh, pressure relief valve at 5 PSI. Okay. Um, just, you know, realizing that that's a compromise yeah. we needed to make. Right. Um, and uh, we do a forced fermentation uh, test to make sure that, you know, that after, and we do that, we pull that sample after dry yeah. hopping, well after dry hopping. So as soon as we see a sign of refermentation, we're like, pull it, see what it's going to get down to. Yeah. And, um, and, and we haven't had that kind of issue since. But that being said, you know, needless to say, the, the, the unintended consequence of, of the, I, I personally believe, it is my hypothesis, that what we're going to find is that those processing temperatures have more to do with this re-fermentation phenomena than any kind of, um, that any kind of uh, hop variety does. Interesting. Um, and and uh, that, that's my personal hypothesis. I, 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 I open. I am completely open to someone proving me wrong about that. But that's what I think. And it's um, an interesting viewpoint. And it's one that I hadn't heard before. Yeah. So, so to me, um, you know, uh, again, there could be compromises on both sides of sure, things. Sure. Sure. But the fact that you know it's taking you know it, it's taking a lot of brewers three to four weeks to produce IPAs right some certain right, types of IPAs right. right now is a royal pain in the in the behind. Um, when when most of us are so used to you right. know, producing ten to twelve day beers, um, and, and and quite frankly, you know, I know there's probably some homebrewers out there that are cringing hearing that. Um, trust me that the very best IPAs I've ever produced were in ten to twelve days, 
And the IPA, the elevated IPA that won a gold for me at GABF was a nine-day beer. <laughs> there um, you go. So I, th- I think uh, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about, about time and maturation and stuff. But Maybe some producers will start uh, uh, pelletizing and kilning at uh, some higher temperatures for certain producers in order to uh, bring that uh, There's a lot of research. I think there's a lot of research that can be done over the next couple of years, and I'm sure somebody smarter than I will come up with a solution. But um, there... there um, it is. It, I, I will also say, from the producer standpoint, it is such a small niche corner of the right, market. Right. Um, what? But but that being said, with all the new new brewers coming in that don't understand um, some of these uh, major issues that could that can come up, right. um, and all the um, you know mobile canning lines and mobile bottling lines, and all the people putting their beer into um, bottles and cans. What worries me is that. It might push the hands of, of of the producers in a way that we really don't want to happen. Yeah. Exploding cans or exploding bottles is the worst possible nightmare for the brand of craft beer that I can see coming in any time in the in the near future. Um, you know, because you're not going to see uh, something on uh, on NBC News or Fox News about uh, specific brewery. They're going to say craft brewer, right. you know, showers uh, baby with you know, bottle of beer or something like that. And that, that, that's the scariest thing in the world to me. And that would, that would get some change pretty, pretty darn quick. <laughs> for, uh, for sure. You know. For sure. No, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, the industry needs to be proactive about that, that, uh, yeah. And, and it, that goes for a lot of different, you know, places. Packaging is one of those. Um, I, you know, I can name numerous ones where if brewers are not proactive about, uh, you know, like ingredient labeling and allergen labeling and whatnot, if you don't self-regulate, then uh, government regulation will come because there will be some disastrous uh, experience, and then uh, and that's the kind that and that and, and self-regulation is always ninety-nine percent yeah. of the time better better than government regulation yeah. for sure. Yeah, let's uh, let's go back to talking about uh, hops. You know, a, a little bit there. Um, talk to me about some of your you know how you evaluate hops, uh, both from a quality perspective and then. Uh, how you visualize how these hops will work together uh, in finished beers. Yeah, so you do a lot of that experimentation in like Project Dank series and uh, moving things in and out and exploring those different combinations. Uh, yeah, I'd like to learn more about that. You know, obviously I'm always trying to, you know, get that competitive advantage of keeping my hand firmly on the pulse of uh, what new hops are coming out. I am constantly bugging my uh, brokers for anything anything new and interesting, um, and that includes, you know, uh, us being the, the first brewery in the country to use um, hops from South Africa, which um, I think there's, you know, there's still quite a bit of potential um, to come out of that country. Um, so long as ABI still uh, allows us to, to buy them. Um, <laughs> You can but, read more about that in a past <laughs> issue of Craft Beer Brewing Magazine. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think, uh, but but uh, you know, from my perspective, they're they're uh, obviously you know I'm 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 greatly concerned not just about the uh, right. sheer amount of bitterness, but um, but the quality of bitterness. Um, you know, I think uh, for a while there, I was uh, throwing. Um, I was, uh, you know, throwing a, a grenade of, of Chinook into each batch of uh, 
of my IPAs, and uh, you know that can, that can come across sometimes as uh, as a coarser bitterness um, than I than I really want. I am a firm believer in um, CO2 hop extracts um, for for a good good majority of the bitterness. I feel like uh, they have come a long way in the quality of bitterness huh. that they can add to beers. Um, and then when you say quality of bitterness, what is uh, you know what is that range that you're talking about there? And you know, could you put words to it? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think if uh, if uh, you know you're going for the amount of bitterness that you say, you know. Uh, not to point a finger, but uh, like what I remember, rogue old crustacean you know, used to being like that is just such a, yeah. a an onslaught of bitterness. But uh, because it's such a big beer, it can also uh, it, you know it can handle that. But um, what I really, really, really try to avoid is that um, kind of aspirin-like bitterness yeah. where you where you're sucking on an aspirin tablet or it gets caught in the back of your throat. Um, I can't stand that. It immediately takes away from all drinkability for me. Um, it's 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 right up there with diacetyl as far as a, a, mm. you know, completely taking away from uh, from what I want in an IPA. But then we go, go on to f- uh, a, a flavor uh, hops, and and I I'm personally a, a big fan of putting those those classic piney grapefruity um, hops in large doses into the whirlpool and into the hop back. Um, the majority of my whole leaf contract is is uh, Centennial, Cascade, and Crystal, um, and 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 Crystal is another one of those hops that really gets overlooked a lot. And um, I think uh, I don't know if it's a if it's a sexy enough variety right now, or if it's marketed well enough to get <laughs> to get favor um, with with more craft yeah. brewers. But it's wonderful, and and, uh, and and it's really cool how different that hop can be, whether it's grown in. Uh, Yakima, Idaho, or, or Oregon, and the stuff that probably the greatest hop I smelled this year up in up in the Pacific Northwest was Oregon grown um, Oregon grown Cascade. Uh, sorry, Crystal. Uh, but um, so onward. I I am also a fan of of pushing you know new new flavors and new aromatics uh, in, in the dry hop. And uh, to me, you know, I try to find out as early as possible um, after you know. And obviously, we go to Yakima and do selection. Um, and I'm going to, I do a lot of avoid when I'm up there. I avoid any kind of diesel fumes. I avoid, um, garlic <laughs> and onion like the plague. Yeah. Um, and I, and I often do look for at least one variety to have that cattiness. And I often look for one variety to have, you know, just sometimes when you're sitting there on the table, it, it, it just one, one hop. And this year it was our mosaic just jumps out at you. Like this is going to be the hop that we wished we had contracted more of come the ne- come come around October of next year. Yeah. Um, and then I go back and I brew with all of them on our on our three barrel pilot system, and I make sure that we have a very firm idea of what those hops are what those hops are going to do. Um, and I I am a huge believer um, in blending, especially for flagship IPAs. Um, I don't like to ever put all my eggs in one basket because um, I want uh, you know a drinker. Um, that uh, becomes really familiar with my Elevated IPA brand to never say, hey, that does not taste like Elevated IPA. I want them to always think that, you know, always know that they can come back to that beer and it, and it, and it, is, and it is the same. Um, and then, you know, with Project Dank, it's just that, you know, we, we trial a lot of different recipes on our pilot system. It used to be a beer that we just put up a production uh, of and, and, you know, roll the dice and say, hey, yeah, that's, that's our, our package Project Dank. And, and anymore, we're, we are trialing those recipes on our pilot system. And now we're going to do, you know, four big releases every year of, of a seasonal Project Dank. And um, 
we take you know we take a lot of uh, a brewers opinions in, into that including sometimes brewers that don't work for us uh, <laughs> you know ask them to come over uh, get give them a free a couple free beers um, and uh, you know what what I'm looking for uh, changes from season to season yeah. and uh, it changes with with the different varieties you know we really recently released altimeter and we all knew what we were going for that and we were going for a softer bitterness and a and a and a, uh, a beer that had a really beautiful um, you know orange and um, you know well orange mainly orange complexity to it and I'll be open and honest that was completely inspired by a stop at uh, Freem on the way up to Yakima last year we we stopped and tried their golden IPA I was like this is amazing I want to make something like this um, and uh, and hopefully uh, Josh doesn't mind uh, that I, I, I got inspiration from him um, and uh, you know but then you know and, and then something like uh, um, something like our newly released acclimated I'm trying to make a little bit more of a classic American pale ale with a with a twist a little bit in the nose um, you know but I, I think I think all of us as brewers are are not only clued into the public's um, desire but our own desire for a little bit more um, a little bit more drinkability and a little less just um, reaching out of the bottle or can and smacking people across the face sure. we all are when you're uh, talking about your hop loads, how do you know rough percentages between, say, uh, you know, whirlpool hop back and, and dry hop? How do you how do you balance those? Um, you know, with I, I do believe you can go uh, overboard in just about everywhere. Um, dry hop certainly allows for a little bit more than, okay. than anywhere else we ne- we never is there a fair number of brewers i talk to who are really just doing very little at all on the hot right. side and pushing it all into dry hop right. there's some that are using you know their whirlpool for even for their bittering you know i'm just so, curious so, how so your we, approach we, looks I, like. I will i will tell you straight up our, our our approach for for hazies is very uh generic to us okay and and um and and we do change around varieties but um we are anywhere between a half a pound and one pound per barrel, and we never add hops before the whirlpool for those beers. Yeah, um, and that's not to say that we wouldn't try it, but um, as, as I've moved on in my career, I believe less and less of those uh, hops that you're adding at 15 minutes and even five minutes are actually coming through yeah. in the aromatics of the beer. Um, and, and so then you you're just, even so, just isomerizing. Yeah, even I don't know. No, no, not awesome. No, that's the point is you're wasting them because you're not really isomerizing those alpha acids and you're just boiling off the aromatics. Ah. You're boiling, you know, volatilizing those aromatics. Um, I if if we do have a, a, a good um, if we have access to a, a cool aromatic hop uh, for whirlpool for, for hop back hopping, I will throw up to a pound per barrel in the hop back. Um, and because I don't believe you're really getting almost any bitterness from those. Okay. And I'm, you know, without an HPLC or mass spec gas chromatography, you're not um, getting a full picture of what your bitterness is sure. in any dry hop beer. That's that's kind of the the general consensus now. Right. Um, and you know, we uh, we got a UV light spec thinking, hey, we're going to be able to test bitterness levels in, in beer, and you know, turns out probably not. Um, so uh, so so for 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 those, you know, that that. That's that's kind of the way we approach the hot side. On the cold side, bare minimum three pounds per barrel of dry hops, and we've gone all the way up to like eight pounds per barrel. And I know that that's nothing, you know, that that other people aren't doing. What we don't do is we don't do any, um, uh, we don't we don't do any, uh, you know, dry hopping until firm until. <laughs> 
primary fermentation <laughs> right, right. Is, is is pretty darn well complete. Yeah. Um, You're not a biotransformation uh, acolyte. I, you know, I, I've just yet to, I just yet to see any any hard and fast evidence for it. Um, that doesn't mean I'm trying to tell, uh, you know, whoever that that is a huge believer in it that they're sure, wrong. Sure. I just know what what's worked for us and what, you know, and, and that's worked for us really well. Yeah. Um, well, there's so certainly on the, production considerations that it, that it benefits as well. I don't know. Of, I don't know about that. Yeah. Um, I I just you know. I don't like getting covered in, in dry hopped beer, and I've gotten covered in dry hopped beer um, <laughs> okay. because you know because because uh, carbon yeah. dioxide hadn't had a chance to, to really blow off, right? Uh, and uh, and yeah, that's that sucks. <laughs> um, yeah. But with with uh, with West Coast IPAs, you know, um, I you know I never really go below sixty, I, you know, sixty calculated IBUs um, when we test uh, when we test bitterness um, of the of the wort of the hopped wort it's always up in the 80 range but that's going to come down yeah and, and just because i just I, I i like bitter i like bitter west coast ipas i do and um you know There's nothing wrong with that yeah and then then you know we'll, we will go up to in the you know calculated you know calculated you know 180 yeah. 200 range for really you know really intense double ipas we've moved more and more away from the whole 50, 30 minute 15 minute editions and we're we're just doing huge yeah. Uh, whirlpool editions will go up to three four pounds per barrel between the whirlpool and the hop back okay and then um we'll d- we really don't go above like four pounds per barrel in in any of our d- west coast ipas or d- double ipas for whatever reason i just don't think they come across huh. and uh, you know especially because of the types of hops we're also using right. you know, obviously there's cross contamination of what kind of hops I mean, you're using but yeah but i'm not using chinook in, as a dry hop in my yeah. in my in my uh in my uh, you know hazy ipa but I'll use the crap I mean, out of it in, the, yeah. in, the, in, in, you know, I use a ton of it in Elevated. And, um, and I, I really like the result. And I, I, you know, there, there, I do feel like there's a huge law of diminishing returns, especially on those West Coast IPAs. Right. You just, you're, you're, just, you're just grinding up $100 bills and throwing it in the tank and you're not really getting anything out of it. That's great for Instagram, though. Yeah, just yeah, exactly. putting those $100 bills in the tank. <laughs> Don't yeah. I know it? Uh, <laughs> uh, and 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 you're. No, I mean, and you're there's been some studies on that too. That you know, there, there is that point yeah. where you know you're just putting more mass that will ultimately settle out of uh, yeah. out of the beer rather than stand solution. But I will say, I want to see more done on that though yeah. with these with the, with with the hazy IPAs because the difference between four pounds per barrel and eight pounds per barrel. I'm not going to say you're getting double the aroma, but there is a big difference. I mean, um, it's not a little bit. It's 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 huge. And, um, and, 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 and I know my, my Yakima, hopefully my Yakima chief, uh, or, uh, Indy hop or, you know, any of the other brokers are listening to this cause they just love hearing this kind of stuff. They're like, Oh, please. Yes. Tell all the, <laughs> tell all the brewers to start using eight pounds per barrel. Maybe they'll come, <laughs> maybe they'll actually pick up all their contracts this year. <laughs> um, you're using a lot of hops there. Uh, what kind of do you use any uh, specific extraction techniques as you in the dry hop? I mean, I know a lot of brewers are you know either rousing or recirculating or using some you know uh, hop uh, torpedoes and guns and a whole variety yeah, yeah. of uh, of tools that uh, are really geared towards improving the extraction of hops. What uh, what kind of strategy do you take around that? Well, so so we use a hop cannon, and and that's not for extraction purposes. That's for for safety purposes right. and for uh, you know keeping down dissolved oxygen in the okay. finish in the finished beer 
plain and simple. Uh, I don't like the idea of a brewer um, climbing on top of a tank with 240 pounds of dry hops sure. and, uh, and and opening the door and and uh, and throwing on those top hops of a in. volcano of exactly, exploding beer. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. So um, hop cannons are, are are a really great tool, and there are a lot of other really great tools that can do just as well for you. Um, and then. Uh, and so we have we have the you know big sweep. Still waiting for the homebrew equivalent of this, where you yeah. can purge the vessel before you push the the uh, hops into the uh, into the fermentation uh, fermentation vessel. But I you know I think there uh, if you're if you're a home brewer, um, there's a lot of other things you could worry about a lot more than <laughs> sure. what kind of dissolved oxygen you're adding with when you're adding your dry hops. When you're adding uh, an ounce of hops. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully more than that. Um, in any case, so so uh, that, you know that that's our right. approach with that. Anything that's over, uh, so, so we have a thirty barrel brew house, but we still do have two fifteen barrel fermenters. Um, those two fifteen barrel fermenters, we never worry about recirculating hops, um, spinning you know so called spinning the tank. Um, when when we get to thirty barrels, um, we will as soon as you get above like as soon as you get to like two pounds per barrel, we will spin the tank. Yeah, and we'll do that uh, on several occasions over over a two day period, and um, with anything above 30 30 barrels we always um spin the tank uh, because uh there's just so much liquid there that won't come in contact right. with and, and we, we've we've done we've done several trials on this and uh and and i you know if if maybe if i didn't care about uh real estate you know and, and, and tank time uh, maybe I could dry hop that 120 of elevated IPA for two weeks and I would get the kind of impact that I wanted but we I, I'm a firm believer in short contact time yeah. for dry hops and um, you know I, I feel I feel like New Belgium did a really good job a few years ago of, uh, of doing some contact time studies and I know some people are going to ignore it but you know what they came up with like two days is about as much as you need yeah and we find three or four days is like that's that's you're done after yeah three or four days um, so we now with our hazies we wait longer um, because we want to know that that's not going to start refermenting. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, but uh, and and you know honestly we've we've uh, found the same thing with uh, with Riot IPA and we're trying to figure out why it, why that beer is refermenting. But that beer is regularly refermenting on us now and we're not interesting. And it's not, it never did before. It never did before. Huh? Never. Huh. And we're we're also like. Um, looking at you know we're looking at the varieties and we're, we're switching up some some because we have we have you know multiple suppliers for certain hop varieties right, and right. we're trying to see like well did does it re does it referment with with these hops from this supplier yes does it referment with these hops from this supplier also yes and you're trying to figure out well what what is the common denominator there right right um are there any other techniques that you use to um yeah, that, that uh, you're a big fan of for either decreasing oxygen in the, the brew house workflow or maintaining the integrity of these beers that uh, that can be damaged uh, pretty easily. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think I think hot side aeration is is fairly well documented. Whether you believe it, in, in, whether you believe it's uh, detrimental to shelf stability or not, um, you know, it certainly darkens wort. Um, and uh, and and you know, the the guys who the guys and gals who uh, have talked to me about hot side aeration and, and, and its effects uh, are a lot smarter than I am. So I'm going to listen to them until I find, hear something, you know, different. Sure. So, so um, I think if you're a home brewer or a brew pub uh, brewer that you know everything's going out of the tap room, it's not something you really should be all that concerned about. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of other things you can bide <laughs> your time with, but um, you know, pump seals. Uh, I'm yeah. I'm going to probably end up buying a whole 
ton of new pumps here uh, because we, we feel that the pumps we currently have are, you know, first of all, we're constantly replacing the seals, which means there's work getting by that probably right. getting oxidized. Um, I, uh, you know, and I'm, I, th I think, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, of pump manufacturers to, to decrease uh, costs have gone to um, external seals on their on their pump heads. Well, in an external seal, if you have a any kind of leak, you're going to be sucking air in. Right. And with uh, with uh, you know internal seals, you'll be pushing beer out. Um, so you know I, I I do like internal seal pumps. Um, they're expensive, but I think they're probably worth it. Um, you know, there's nothing. But to that end, I've got a hop back. There's nothing that, about a hot back that doesn't scream hot side aeration to yeah, me. Yeah. Um, and we've done some things to tr hopefully um, help with that. You know, obviously we're not the size of a company like uh, Odell's that has a hot back where they're, you know, they're, they could probably purge it with CO2 and keep it sealed the whole time. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, I don't have that kind of money right now, <laughs> but uh, we do fill from the bottom slowly, and and only then do we kind of go around the tangential arm once it's full. Um, and, uh, you know, from there on, uh, you know, we, we just follow, I think what, you know, we do what, what, what separates any great brewer from the good to mediocre brewers. And I think we just follow really great standard operating procedures and, and I'll, I'll pat the backs of, um, you know, the vast majority of, of brewers that I've, that I've worked with and that, uh, you know, and that have gone on and, um, you know, gone on either from La Cumbre or, or any other, the, the great breweries down in Albuquerque. We've got a lot of great brewers down there doing a really great job of making beer that maybe I wouldn't have made or maybe somebody else would have made, but they're, they're, they're following great standard operating procedures. And I feel like that's, that's the thing that, set, that, that um, has, has, so, has had so many people that I've talked to talking about why is the beer from Albuquerque of all places pretty darn good? And I, and it's, it's pretty simple. It doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't take rocket science to realize that yeah. these people are just know, really know what they're doing as far as uh, yeast handling and really know what they're doing as far as, uh, as racking room operations and just good SOPs. Yeah. It's easy to focus on the recipe and think that makes a, a whole lot of difference, but, uh, when it comes down to it, it's it's not necessarily that. I've always said you can give me the worst beer recipe in the world, and I can probably make you a perfectly drinkable beer. And you can give the greatest recipe in the world, you know, to to a really inexperienced brewer, and they can make something completely undrinkable. Um, you know, I've always you know, recipe recipes matter. Sure, absolutely, recipes matter. And I, I always thought it was so cool the way that. Uh, 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 Vinny Chalerzo um, just made uh, his Pliny the Elder recipe just public knowledge. And um, I've done the same thing with all my recipes because I know even a great commercial brewer is going to take that into their facility. And it's going to be a great beer, but it's not going to be elevated IPA. It's going to be a different beer. So um, to me, the recipes are it, – it's, it's, it's fun. That's the fun yeah. part of it. Sitting around a table with, you know, one of the greatest parts of my job is sitting around the table with, with my head brewer, Alan, my director of brewery operations, Daniel, and sitting there drinking beers together and talking about the, the, the next specials that we're going to be doing and, and coming to the table. Sometimes we'll, we'll come to the table and just have a, you know, a, a, a dart throwing, uh, you know, operation where we just throw a lot of ideas out. And sometimes we'll each individually come up with three recipes and, and, talk about what we like about each other's recipes and what, what we're going to, but what I don't like that. And well, I don't like that about yours and, and we'll come together and it, it, it's, that's super fun, Yeah. but it's not nearly as important as the, as the mind melding sessions that we have as a, as a, as a greater team about what's going right and what's going wrong in our cellar and our cellar room standard operating procedures. 
those are the things that make sure not just that one special tasted great, but make sure that every single beer that's coming out of your facility tastes great. That makes sense. Um, what does uh, you know, the future of innovation at La Cumbre look like? Um, you know, there are a lot of trends going on. Obviously, uh, you know, you have come around on hazy IPAs and are making those now. We'll see how long that trend lasts. Uh, you know, certainly adjuncted flavor forward stouts are, uh, you know, are a big move now. Um, and a large number of brewers have uh, jumped back in the lager game and, uh, you know, seem to be uh, putting some, uh, you know, some chips behind uh, as they bet on, on that growth. Um, you know, for you, and you make a, a beer, it's literally called just beer, La Cumbre beer, uh, uh, your own light lager approach. Um, yeah, what does uh, what does that future look like for you? You know, I so first of all, that, that beer is one of the greatest pieces of pride for me because I've beaten the very largest breweries in the world at their own game twice now, <laughs> um, and and that means that makes me feel awfully darn good. Um, note to everyone listening to this podcast: drink more lager. My CFO would hate me for saying this because it takes up a lot of tanks, tanks, but I love making them and I really love drinking them. So give me an excuse to, to make more lagers. Um, uh, that being said, uh, you know, I wish I could say that I am the person that sees the future uh, better than others. I think, um, you know, the, obviously the brewers of the Northeast really, um, really caught on to something that the rest of us were really missing yeah uh, about what the about what the craft consumer want what the craft consumer not only would want but will want probably into the future i mean there's an enormous there's still an enormous uh cross-section of of craft beer drinkers that um that have never tried a a, a, you know what we call either east coast ipa or hazy ipa um I do feel like there is going to be a, a kind of a responsibilizing of, of the craft industry a little bit. And I think there is going to be some, um, some, some lighter, uh, low, lower alcohol beers become, becoming popular. Um, I certainly hope so. As a father of two that's, uh, you know, chomping on 40 years old, um, I love sitting down and having two uh, American Pale Ales. So, yeah. so, so we released Acclimated. American Pale Ale, and it is, um, you know, we call it the the um, the beer for IPA drinkers when they're not drinking IPA, and 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 uh, I I absolutely love this new beer, and I, I hope you know everybody gets a chance to try it and, and they like it too, um, and I would love to brew more more of those styles because I think when we brew when we when we have an opportunity ourselves as brewers to brew them more often we all right. get better at them and when then we all start competing with each other and that makes us even better at them and um and that's a, that's a great thing for the consumer too um you know i really hope that the future of craft beer isn't all of us trying to keep up with each other by making uh alcoholic seltzer i just you know um <laughs> and, and that's not to yeah, say i yeah. don't ever drink a vodka lacroix I probably shouldn't have said that, but I said that. It's not to say that I, you know, I, I have a problem with that. Um, and if that's what you think your brand is going to increase your brand portfolio and it is going to increase your profitability, you know, far be it for me to criticize. I'm not going to do it. 
Um, and, and yeah, I, and these, I mean, we're back to the same crystal ball issues. You know, folks were betting on cider in the same kind of way a few years ago, and it hit a certain point and then just flattened out. Um, yeah, but to that end, you know, my, my friends over at Tractor Brewing Company, I think that's their number one selling uh, huh. stuff right now. And they're going to, I think they're, they're about 5,000 barrels a year. And yeah. they, most of what, a lot of what they produce is cider. And, you, and, and the cool thing about that to me is that, you know, you have this whole other, they, they brought a whole other, um, you know, cross-section of the population sure, into sure. their tap rooms oh and i'm not trying to like you know mm-hmm. say anything negative about cider we love love cider it's yeah. uh, uh you know just didn't uh, the hopes that uh, the the sector kind of the market kind of pinned on cider for bringing these new drinkers in it worked up to a point and it just flattened out and uh you know and i think you know, hard seltzer is probably a similar type of products where it'll grow 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 and then just flatten again uh, when it hits the the maximum number of folks that want to want to drink that i'll tell you what what i what i will do and what i won't do what i will do is absolutely accept that um the things that we think of as beer is growing and and i think overall that's a good thing for the industry yeah um i will not lose sight of what of what i do for a living and 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 that's make beer and if someone wants me to make my beer tastes like stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with beer. If you want me to throw, um, you know, cherry pies into my beer, that's probably not going to happen. I, I, I honestly, I, I, I am, I was so happy when I had to. I mean, my my CFO hated, but I was so happy when I had to buy back pumpkin beer a couple years back, and I just thought to myself, like honestly, like. I was questioning, you know, you question your own integrity sometimes because, like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm making stuff for people that really don't want to drink beer. Um, and and we're brewers and we make beer. And I love beer. And I can make beer for people that don't want to feel bloated um, from drinking it. I can make, and, I, and, and it'll still taste like beer. Um, I can make beer for people that don't want, uh, you know, something that's bitter and it'll still taste like beer. And I can make something, I can make beer for people that want something that's really fruit forward. And it's still going to taste like beer. I'm going to Belgium next, uh, you know, next week, and I can't wait to go and drink Creek and and Framboise. Um, I love those beers, and they taste like beer to me. Um, and so, uh, you know, if the if the if the trend, you know, in this very competitive environment is to make um, a beer taste like um, orange soda pop, I'm probably not. I'm probably not following that trend. Um, but you know, I I I uh, I, I had my I, you know I went out to. Um, Southern California, of all places, and tried a bunch of hazy IPAs that I um, thought to myself, "Man, I'm clearly missing something um, that about these beers." Because um, my favorite word in 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 the uh, description lexicon is "compelling," and I just had not found one found anything that I found compelling huh. about those yeah. beers. I found a lot of really sloppily made ones. Um, I found ones that tasted, you know, felt like chalk in my mouth because the sheer amount of yeast that was left in it. I found a lot of diacetyl ridden ones and ones that had oxidation and stuff like that. But I hadn't found anything that was compelling. Yeah. And then I was like, man, these beers, okay, they're compelling. They're really good. Yeah. And that's what I've always tried to make. And that's what I always want to make is beers that I find compelling. And hopefully other people do too. Right. Um, and, uh, and I feel like my, that's, that my integrity depends on that as a, as a brewer to make things that I, I both like and I find um, fit with... Uh, fit with my um my the overall brand of la cumbre and, and the and the and the, the driving spirit of what we do um day in and day out and and uh and and that's what we do we make beer that we believe in and we make beer that we that, that we find compelling i think that's a great place to wrap this up thanks jeff thanks jamie
Many thanks to this episode's sponsors. G&D Chiller is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Join the community of home brewers at the AHA. Bring the world to your brew house with select ingredients from BSG. And SS BrewTech is advancing brewing equipment design, performance, and quality. So, Jeff, if uh, our listeners want to hear and learn more about uh, La Cumbre, uh, where do they find you? Uh, you can find us on uh, Facebook and Instagram at La Cumbre Brewing. And uh, you can find us on the World Wide Web at lacumbrebrewing.com. Or uh, at your tap room. Absolutely. In we, have, uh, we have two. Uh, two. Two tap rooms, uh, one on the east side of Albuquerque at our at our production brewery in a very where very uh, industrial district, yep. and uh, also a, a bright shiny new one over at uh, Coors and Montano um, in the uh, New Andalusia Plaza. Very cool. I encourage everyone to go. Beautiful uh, uh, state and a beautiful uh, beautiful brewery. Come visit Albuquerque. There's a lot of great there's a lot of great reasons to visit Albuquerque, and the breweries are certainly one of them. Yeah. If you've uh, enjoyed this episode, we sure hope you'll go to beerandbrewing.com and click on that subscribe button, become a subscriber to the magazine. Also, use whatever pod- podcast platform uh, you use and subscribe to the podcast there. We appreciate your support. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.